Welcome to Buy, Grow, Sell, a podcast for entrepreneurs looking to acquire, grow, or exit a business, hosted by Simon Bedard. Hey there, it's Simon Bedard here. If you're brand new to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast, then welcome. It's great to have you on this journey. Since its launch, I've interviewed many entrepreneurs that have bought, grown, or sold a business. And in some cases, they've completed all three steps and started all over again. Our goal is to share the stories of business owners that have traveled at least part of this cycle so that we can learn from their experience. Whether it's the dizzying heights of success or the hard lessons learned through adversity, we get to the heart of what drives success and how to apply these lessons on your journey. So join us for the best insights, interviews, and inside information on how to buy, grow, and sell a business straight from the entrepreneurs who've lived and breathed it. My next guest is what I would call a serial entrepreneur. Diane Prince started her first company in her 20s with the express goal of building it to sell and retiring by 30. So she started her recruitment business in the back room of her house, and in six short years, she built it to $50 million in revenue before selling the business to a listed company and all before her 30th birthday. Diane has gone on to found, build, and sell a number of other companies, and in this episode, she shares her story and some of the lessons she's learned along the way. She will also share one of her most important pieces of advice for any business owner looking to build a valuable company. This is Diane Prince. Hey, Simon. Hey, Diane. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, great to have you. You know, when I first saw your bio, I I thought, wow, this is a story that I think every business owner kind of dreams about. Fifty million of revenue in six years is is an amazing accomplishment. You know, tell us a bit about the company. My first company that we're that we're talking about. That's the one everybody wants to hear about. <laughs> that was the biggest <laughs> one. We, it was a very a super niche staffing agency. So we specialized in. And I'm not sure if you have title insurance in Australia. I think you do. It's it's it, it's really like really specific, and it's the people who do technical searches when you're buying a property. So it was a very super specific niche staffing agency. Cool. And and so when when did you start the business? 1996. 96. Okay, cool. So the internet was just coming about and things were starting to happen. I remember it clearly, unfortunately. It makes me feel a bit old. But, uh, yes, yes. So, so you started this thing in the back of your house. That's, that's correct. I actually, I wasn't in that house before we started it, but the clients who we thought were going to be our first clients were in, in Pasadena in California, near LA. And we thought that's where our first, our, our main clients were going to be. And so rented a house in that area. That was the idea. It didn't hurt, turn out that way, but that was the idea. <laughs> yeah, cool, cool. And and you started this on your own? I started it with my, my husband. Yeah, my then husband. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I started it. I quit my job and started it. And then he came on board very quickly after that. Excellent. And And what led you to doing this? I mean, was your background in this sort of technical area? No, not at all. And my background, actually, I had I had tempt. So back then, you call it temp, tempt, but I had worked as a temporary secretary receptionist during college and graduate school. So I had I knew what that how that looked or how that business worked. And my father 
was in title insurance. He was an executive at a title insurance company. And I always believe, Simon, that you that when you create a business, I, I'm a big believer in the why and what your goals are. And so our goal was to start start a business and, and see if we could build it and sell it and retire, which is what we did. You know, we ended up getting divorced. So that's, that's a whole other story. But that was after the exit. <laughs> But that's fascinating. So you you started the business ultimately with the end in mind, and 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 selling was the, the ultimate objective from from day one. It was that was that was in our our um, our original business plan. Yes. Yeah, great. It's um, it's it's uh, it's not as common as I'd like to think, where people are starting with the end game in mind and and building towards that goal. And you know, obviously, the the there's always a winding road, right? We like to think business is a straight mm. line, and and it never really sort of turns out like that. So so tell us a bit about the business and how, how did you grow it in such a such an amazing sort of fast pace? Well, the funny thing is about like what you just said. So people, when we were selling it, were, would say things to us like, it's like you won the lottery. We're like, no, it was actually that we made a plan to do this. And we, yeah, ex- yeah. we executed on the plan and it actually, you know, for a, a multiple, multitude of reasons, it, it, it happened. So it was, it was, Planning from the beginning, but not not over planning. I was we we got a book, the actual book back then called "How to Start a Temp Agency for Dummies." You know that that series of books, <laughs> and we followed basically followed the steps with a lot of winding roads. It was not that easy. <laughs> Yeah, look, and and you know you need to contextualize anything like that. But I mean, I I love the the idea that you had you had a plan, you you did some research, you pulled it together, and you you started executing. And 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 no doubt you jumped all over the place and put out fires and dealt with a lot of stuff on the way. I imagine. Well, the I mean, the main thing was was executing because throughout the whole business, throughout those years. It, so many people would say to us, oh, I had that idea too. Or, you know, and it's, and we're like, okay, well, we're the ones in this, <laughs> in this house. And, you know, we eventually moved to offices and we had several offices around the United States, but um, it's so much not, I mean, it was a good idea and it was a really good timing for what we were doing in the market. But also it was hugely, as you know, on all about the execution. And, and were there any sort of, I mean, it sounded like a great idea, the timing was there, but was there any sort of period through that beginning phases, beginning years maybe where you kind of weren't sure or you were questioning, did you ever doubt that that you were going to hit the plan? Oh, there were there were times. There were times that at, at the beginning once I remember my um, – my my then husband said, "If someone offered us a hundred thousand dollars right now, I would sell this." And I got so mad. I'm like, "What?" <laughs> like we had this huge fight, and I'm like, "No, you know." Because and I think that goes to show. I was actually speaking at an event earlier today, and I, I now this is bringing it up in my mind because it's like you know, you just once you start the business, like you have this idea, and then all of a sudden you have a business. And then it's there becomes a certain stage that I think is very common for founders that all you want to do is not have this business anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I think you know it's different perspectives, right? Looking from the inside out and having to deal with all the kind of minutiae that comes along with a business, right? Yes, yes. And and so how many uh, how many staff did you have uh, in the end? Oh, we had thousands. We had, if, wow. if you think about it, so we got to the, we got to the point where our weekly revenue was a million dollars a week and our typical bill rate was about $40 an hour 
per person. So yeah, so for for our temp staff and internally, internally, I think we we had about fifty people internally. We had offices around the United States. Yeah, yeah, okay. So yeah, so fifty fifty kind of technical employees, but then representing thousands of people out there who who were looking for work. Well, we had we had um, we as we as we built our team, we brought in we brought in co-founders, what you call them today to co-founders, but we brought in basically partners who bought into the company. So they took executive roles. And so and then we hired managers in different offices and then we hired recruiters and salespeople. And then we had the people out there who were actually doing doing the contracting work. Yeah, interesting. And so, okay, so the model was all temping. It was, um, and and I imagine, do you, you know, you have people for set contracts and things like that, do you? Or is it, you know, is it just literally ad hoc stuff or how did that sort of work? So we really started by the seat of our pants and did not know anything. I mean, you know, and, and again, like to the point of the people who said, oh, I had that idea. I mean, you know, we talked to people who are like, oh, I just, you know, I, I want to start my own agency too, but I need to get the experience. And we're like, what? Like we, <laughs> we, yeah, we had no experience. So now I'm forgetting your original question. Oh, no, no. I was just curious about the type of work and, you know, you, you're obviously putting people out there in temp work and stuff oh, like that. Yes. Is it? I, I see a lot of recruitment businesses out there these days, and some of them are focused on permanent recruitment, and some of them are focused on more sort of contract work. And it seems that while the permanent stuff is great for cash flow for a lot of businesses, the the ongoing repetitive nature of some of these contracts tends to make those businesses quite attractive to acquirers. Um, it, it, did you find that? Oh, one hundred percent. In fact, I was just working with a tech staff staffing company with the goal of helping them to create their contracting division, which we did. And I mean, brought on, you know, like, like one contractor was worth $5 million of recurring revenue. And then, and then you stack, I mean, you could just see the difference of, and they had originally started a year before I started my first company in 96 and you are still building and growing. So it, it, 100%, you can't really, I think it would, it's, it's difficult to exit a direct hire company unless you really are, you know, like corn fairy status, because otherwise it's very, it's highly profitable and it's a lot less stress. I mean, when you have contractors and their, their employees and you're paying into their, their taxes and insurance, health insurance, and, you know, there's a lot of different, comp- and, and there's, especially in the States, there's a lot of different lawsuits that kind of, you know, there, there's a lot of, it's very complicated and margins can be thin, but when you put people on contract, sometimes it's a set period of time, but other times they they stay, like they become part of, you know, really part of the, the workflow. And then you keep adding people on. So it's really, that's how you build in recruitment. That's how you build a scalable business to exit. Mm. And, and and so, you know, I think one of the things many business owners would be asking is how, how do you drive to that sort of level of revenue? I mean, you know, I, I think so many people in, in many, many businesses, pick a pick an industry, doesn't matter. They all seem to have these kind of ceilings or hurdles that people struggle to get over certain revenue levels. And, you know, whether it's two, five, 10, then 20 and so forth, um, you know, 50 million is, is a solid, solid business. So, I guess I imagine a lot of interest, uh, listeners would be interested to know, like, how do you drive to such a high level of revenue in such a short period of time? Well, it, it, a lot. There's a lot of different factors that go into it. One is timing and product market fit. 
and the kind of business you create. I work with entrepreneurs now. And when we talk about the decisions that they're making early on in the business, you have to decide what your what your goal is. And that's why I do believe in knowing your end game at the end. You know, you'll hear a lot of people say, don't think about the exit. Don't, you know, I don't really believe in that because I think that if you have, you know, I mean, there are, there are so many, there are millions of different ways to start a business from a local bakery you know, to a VC backed company that that is going to be a unicorn. So when you ask that question, how to get to fifty million dollars, you have to have you have to have a revenue. You have to have a model that can actually scale to get you that money. Yeah, that no, makes makes perfect sense. And and as you you know, when you started the business, did you and obviously you have the end game in mind, did you have a number that, you know, in terms of value that you were trying to drive towards? No. I I I, I did not expect it to get as big as it did. So so as you approached it um towards the sort of, you know, latter years, you know, year five, I mean you must have been sort of thinking, you know, you you're getting towards this amazing point. What what was your sort of thoughts? What did you think the business was worth back then? We we ha- we ha- we hired an investment banker to for to broker the deal. So I mean it was I think it was pretty I think we got pretty much what we thought it would be. And we and the, the deal was twenty-eight million dollars. So when you have fifty million dollars in revenue, it's not, you know, there's EBITDA and, and all that stuff. So it was um so I think we got pretty fair. We had a deal before that, and I know you're familiar with this because you you, you talk on the this is your this is your niche is exiting, but um what our our accountant had said to us, you're, you're the deal is gonna fall through six times before it goes through. And, <laughs> and that was true. And then we also knew, though, that if both parties really want it to happen, it will happen. But we did have an exit planned before that at, at year five that fell through because they were their their team was here doing diligence when the trade towers were hit a 9-11. Yeah, right. And that deal that deal you know, that f- fell apart, but it ended up the deal that we, we did end up doing was, was anyway, was, was more beneficial to us in the long run. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, nine eleven, I guess, you know, like Corona, you know, like the, the coronavirus, it's COVID-19. There's, there's these pivotal, pivotal events, I guess, that, that changed the world and obviously business follows suit, right? Out of interest. So $28 million is, you know, a fabulous outcome in, in you know, most people's books. So just curious in terms of what was the sort of methodology they used to come up with that number? Like, you know, was it a multiple of EBITDA or revenue or just, you know, broadly, what was the sort of methodology they used? It was a multiple of EBITDA. And if we hadn't had, and I, I have in other exits, I mean, I've done everything from using an investment banker to use the yellow notepad and call everybody I knew to tell them that I'm selling this thing. <laughs> so, but I think if we were not as anxious to make it happen, and yeah, you know, you're, you're shaking, you're nodding your head because you know what I'm going to say, <laughs> we would have, we would have ended up with more. You know, we were there were so many times where we were like, well, just say yes, just say yes. And he was pushing back. And it is so interesting. You know, if you think about at the, at the early stage of a startup, when you're counting every single penny, and then at that stage, fast forward, if you do get to the point that you're going to exit, you're like ready to, you know, leave $5 million on the table because you just want to get the thing done. 
Yeah, I totally understand what you're saying. It's and, and what, how long did it take? Like from your first, you know, the first time you guys sat down and and as a group said, okay, hey, you know, like we've got a potential buyer, or you know, we're going to start going down this path. How long did it take from that kind of moment, roughly, to to when you had actually settled and closed the deal and you know had had some money in the bank? Yeah, it took a, well, it took about over a year because well, first we had that. First, we had that one deal that fell apart. So that was, I mean, that was a whole process. That's when we hired the investment banker. They wrote the book. They, you know, we talked to several different different uh, entities who were interested from everything from PE firms to strategic buyers. So we went through that whole process and then the deal fell apart. And then we decided, and then it was 9-11. So we decided, okay, we are actually going to go heads down and build this more. So we kind of decided this wasn't the this isn't the time to sell, and we we were pivoting to the strategy of buying other companies. We decided this would be a good time to acquire, and the first so we hired someone to come in and do it for us. The first call he made to a business broker, he said, "No, but I think I know a company that might be interested in buying you." So <laughs> my next my next. 10 months in my role in the company, I was working, working on the deal. So it took about really about 10 months from that call to actually closing the deal. Yeah. Interesting. And, and, you know, I think anybody who's been through a deal will, will relate to what you're saying. And, and for those who haven't share me, share with us a little bit, like what, what, how much time and effort goes in on your behalf. I mean, obviously you have a day job, right? <laughs> you are busy, a busy, successful entrepreneur. You're doing stuff. And now you've got this entire new process sort of going on in your world, which, you know, how did you find that from a timing, commitment, emotional sort of perspective? Well, we had, we had a team, but, you know, we had, we had a strong executive team and we had, we had an operator who was running the day-to-day part of the business so I really had to, I, I made that my full-time job. I mean, I really, I had, um, I had started another company while we had that company and then I kind of, and then I brought in a team to run that. And that was, that was a, a software company. So it was like early days of, of, of internet, but I really, I mean, honestly, I didn't do much else. And, and it, even with the investment bankers, I mean, I, I, I've done, I've done deals later on that I didn't. I guess, well, most of them, it, it took a lot of time. I mean, to, you know, it's so many documents. I have, a, I have a photo, an old photo of the conference table of the files that you actually had to sign. I mean, it's entire, like, I don't know how many files, but yeah, it was, it was, it was a lot of work. Do you know, it's, it's, it's kind of funny saying all that because I, you know, you do a due diligence and there are so, you're right. There's so many documents. There's so many things to do. And of course, you know, I imagine there wasn't really these kind of digital online in the cloud data rooms then, right? So I, I, I would love to see that photo of all those documents. I can imagine. I'll send, <laughs> I'll send it to you. <laughs> yeah, I, 
I can just imagine every every now and again when I'm uh, you know feeling frustrated, or the team's feeling frustrated about pulling together a, a, an online in the cloud data room. I'll show them the photo and go, "Hey, hey, it could be worse." Yeah, it was so <laughs> fun though. I mean, we knew it was at the end of it, at the end of signing everything, yeah. so it wasn't. I could not complain at all. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess it's light at the end of the tunnel, right? That's fantastic. Yeah. And and what happened when you sort of struck the deal? Did you have to hang around for a while afterwards? What what did that sort of look like in that transitionary phase? Well, we had, and I, I strongly believe when you're building when you're building your team that everybody has to have a, a strong motivation why they're part of the company. You'll hear people say that you need somebody who shares your passion or your vision. I don't believe that because I don't think anyone, if it's not, if they're not the founder or the original founder, they are not going to be as passionate about your business as you are. I just don't believe that. It would be very rare. So we found some, because we knew like our goal was for that company to get out and retire. Like we wanted to retire in our thirties. So we found our, our first not our first, oh yeah, one of our our first like co-founder or partner who he came in, he bought in. His goal was to be the CEO of a publicly traded staffing company. So we all, all of our goals, we had different goals, but they were, the business was a vehicle to get us all to our goals. So that's what happened. So we brought him in. He ended up staying. We stayed for a little bit, but you know how it goes. You don't really like advise for long or it's, it does, that doesn't really, it never works. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You can't have too many chiefs, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, interesting, but I love that concept that you you know, and and I by the way, I totally agree with you. I mean, no, nobody's going to come in and have the same level of passion and commitment and focus and, and objectives as you as the founder. But I love this idea that you were able to have multiple stakeholders with very different objectives and goals, and yet align that enough to work collectively on one core outcome. I mean that that in itself is can be can be challenging, mm-hmm. and so yeah. you've settled the business, you've gone on, and and since then, of course, because yeah, you have early retirement, and so what do you do? You go and of course start some new businesses. Um, so tell tell us a little bit about your new kind, those new businesses, and and where that sort of has led to. Yeah, this is this is the part that's going to be my book, and then turned into a movie, <laughs> <laughs> a drama. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, there's drama so, everywhere, isn't it? <laughs> so, so if you remember, our goal was to our goal was to retire and spend time together. We got divorced. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, at least you can laugh about yeah, it. That's yeah, the main thing. That, this was 13 years ago, but there were a lot of other, we, yeah. Then, um, yeah. So we you know, started some different. I ended up. I took over a bit. So while we were we basically, okay, so I made millions in my 20s. I uh, was retired in my 30s. I learned a lot of lessons in my 40s. <laughs> and, now, and now I teach other people how to, how to start, scale, and sell their companies. Yeah, awesome, awesome. And and so, what sort of clients do you work with these days? Are they typical of a certain industry or size, or what? What does that generally look like? So, really, the clients who I typically work with are they have revenue. So, I do have I do work with some tech startups that are pre revenue and building an app, and so I, I work with them as well. But I I generally I work with I seem to 
companies that are building with revenue, they have about between anywhere between like a quarter of a million to $5 million in revenue. That seems to be my sweet spot to help people. And I love one of the common things that we work on is building their team and how to things that I have learned too on how to, how to scale. It's always with people, right? So, and I've always been in the people business most of the time. I mean, I've worked with, I've worked in candy and marketing and things like that when I've been working with clients. I had a women's fashion business too. That was, uh, that was something I started after the divorce and we, and we sold, but that, that was still about people. I had over 300 women selling the clothing and, 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 trunk shows across the country. So, um, yeah, so generally what we work on are things about scaling. And sometimes what I do, it's a combination of coaching and consulting. What I realized is that there's so many coaches out there who haven't actually founded businesses, a lot of startup coaches. And I thought, well, that that seemed kind of interesting to me because you can't really know what it's like to stay up at night and not, you know, not know if you're going to meet cash flow or deal with people problems and things like that. So it's a combination. Part of it is honestly like part of it's like therapy and part of it is actually <laughs> consulting on like how to, how to do that thing. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? And, I, and it's, I, I'm glad to hear you say that. W- one of my great beliefs is that, you know, if you haven't had, a few sleepless nights wondering whether your business is going to make it or not, you probably haven't been in business. Um, you know, it's just one of those things. And it's you, you can describe the path, you can take a photo of the path and the journey, you can map the journey. But unless you have walked the journey, it is pretty hard to sort of explain it to somebody or really advise with that level of depth and sincerity, right? Yeah. I get, I get two often asked questions, which are really interesting. And one is from coaches and they'll say, they'll ask me, Diane, how do I, how do I convince startup founders to work with me as a startup coach when I haven't been a founder? So, well, I don't know, you know, like, I, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I think, and I yeah. think there are things that, that, there are things that coaches, there's different niches, right? There's mindset. And I think there are fantastic coaches who can help in certain areas that have not been startup founders. But at the same time, I'm like, well, the reason why I did this is because I have that experience. The other thing that people ask me, I was asked this today, I was on a, um, I was speaking on how, on scaling your t- building your startup teams. And I got asked, how do you build a team? How do you start hiring people without any money? And if you are, in my opinion, if you are, if you are in business, it is about money. Business is, it's just, it's about money. And that's why, you know, part of business is, it, unless you are building, unless you are building something that is a tech company to get market share and you're building a unicorn, but then still you have to get, you get, have to get money. You have to get investors Absolutely. or you have to get revenue. and. That's what you need to get people. You like you cannot do these. Th- this is a business. Yeah, something something's got to give, right? You've got to be able to either commit the time and drive the revenue yourself, or somebody gives you the revenue, or, you know, the income, the money to to invest in the processes, right? Yeah, it's so interesting to me having having had that perspective of being a business owner, like before the whole entrepreneur startup was such a thing. You know, so really building it from the perspective of building a business that just seemed like like when I built my first software company. That was in 2000. 
And we had a consultant come from Silicon Valley who was telling us how it worked and how you build market share and you don't, you don't make money, you don't make profit. And I was like, that, that's not what I'm going to do. <laughs> <laughs> I built a profitable, it was a job board and it was, you know, it, that was, it, I ended up selling that and that ran for 13 years as a profitable business. It, it's this is a really strange concept, isn't it? And it, uh, this idea of building these companies that that are not profitable, and then and and I and uh, once again, I mean, I think there's lots of people who'll be listening who have been around the software tech space and will feel this in their bones. But so many people are running on you know borrowed time almost. You, you know, you can't continue to run a business without profits. And and certainly, unless you're getting lots and lots of ongoing investment, right? But even that sort of starts to tap out for most people, um, unless apparently you're Uber or Tesla or yeah. you know, one of these enormous companies. And I think that yeah, and so and I would never tell somebody like don't do that because I mean they might be the next Mark Zuckerberg. I don't know, but there's such a small. I mean, it's so such a tiny. It's such a tiny chance that you're going to succeed anyway. And I mean, like (laughs) tiny, tiny, tiny chance that you're going to succeed, that you're going to be a a unicorn. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And as we've said, you know, just there's so many hurdles along the way, right? Not just revenue hurdles, but there's so many other challenges in business. If If you're not making money, that's an enormous stress to have over the hanging over your head every day, isn't it? Yeah. And look, I think it's I think it's probably right for some people and, and startup founders and the tech space and all that. And I know a lot of people are founders and they found a company, they get investment that that doesn't work. They found another company. You know, that's that's just not really my space and what, what, what I work with. Yeah, interesting. And so, if you know, you've got the benefit of a lot of hindsight here and multiple businesses that you've started, built and exited, you know, looking back at your successes, is there anything that, you know, your current self would go back and tell yourself in your 20s when you were starting this journey? When I was starting the journey, um, I would probably tell myself, I don't know, I think I was, I was pretty good when I was starting it, but I, I think, no, I guess... I learned a lot of self-awareness because I had no, I really like things, things work. So I can't say it it didn't work with the business wise and financially, but personally I was, I was so obsessed with my business and in some ways you have to be, but I've learned through the years how to hustle. Like I love building businesses. I love the hustle. I love the, I love the scaling. I love solving those problems. But now I'm able to do it in a way that I can I can also emotionally detach from it and realize that I I am not my business. Now I don't know if my business would have worked though if I if I yeah. if I had the mentality I do now. But I I'm I'm a lot more mellow now. That's for sure. Yeah, and this but isn't that a such an essential thing? I think you know we all talk about it in an ideal world, but it's. Uh, Getting to the end of your journey and associating your personality and sense of self-worth to a business can be really detrimental to your mental health, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, look, I did get divorced, you know, and, and it was my my husband and I were, we were co-founders and we were together all the time. And we did, a, we, we built a lot of things. We built homes. We had three kids and it was, so we were so driven and constantly going. And then once we sold it, that was, we were so driven towards that point. It was very interesting once that happened and we're kind of left with a lot of money, 
and then and then that time in ourselves. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, I guess there's there's a cost on everything, right? Yeah, yeah. So um, so Diane, I'm I'm going to ask you in a minute to to share with us maybe your one tip that you know other business owners can take away from this. You know, obviously we have business owners and entrepreneurs who who listen to the podcast predominantly. But before we get to to your one tip. Tell us, how can people get in touch with you? Like, you know, are you are you happy for people to connect with you on LinkedIn? Is there a website? How, you know, how do people reach out? Absolutely. LinkedIn is great. I'm on LinkedIn. Super happy to, for people to connect with me there. Also on my website is my name.co. So it's dianeprince.co.co. And I'm always, I, I have different programs and things like that. So I'm always updating my website. And currently I'm doing free speed coaching. So when you go to my website, you can see what's what's available. Oh, look, that sounds fantastic. And I'm sure there'll be uh, lots of people looking to to take you up on that offer. You know, I, I alone have really been enjoying chatting to you and hearing some of your insights. I think there's always always something to be learned there. So, and, and for those listening too, if you do reach out on LinkedIn, Put a little note there saying that you heard Diane on, on the Buy, Build, Sell podcast. At least she'll know where you're sort of reaching out from and and why. It might give her a little bit of context, just a polite thing to do. But um, so, uh, so yeah, so Diane, um, one tip. Is there one thing that uh, you would broadly sort of share with the world and tell them to keep, you know, focus on or think about as they're, as they're going on their journey? Yes, there is so much advice out there and so much noise about startups and entrepreneurship and other people sharing about their their outward successes. So when you take advice, when you hear advice, filter it. And remember that entrepreneurship is, is personal and it's exciting and it's you're creating the path, only your path. That's what entrepreneurship is. You're creating something totally new. So Ignore your competition. Focus on you and know what know what you want out of your business. If you know your own vision and your core values, then you can filter all of that other stuff to stay on your path because there's a million different decisions that you can make. And each of those decisions is going to affect how you live your life. So once you know, just remember that you can make decisions and all of the decisions that you make in your business are going to affect how you live your life. That's some very wise words, Diana. Thank you so much for sharing. You know, I think this message of work out what kind of life you want and then build a business to deliver it <laughs> is is something that the world needs a little more of. So, um, so look, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your story. I, I know so many people will get a lot of value out of this. And uh, as we said, um, you know, anybody who would like to, to get in touch with Diane, please reach out on LinkedIn or, or her website, dianeprince.co. I'm sure she'll be very happy to hear from you. Diane, thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Simon. The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable, scalable, and saleable. Find out how you score on the eight factors that drive company value by completing the Value Builder questionnaire. Upon completion, we will send through your business scorecard so you can see how to maximize the value of your company. Just go to exitadvisory.com.au forward slash scorecard. The Buy, Grow, Sell podcast is brought to you by Exit Advisory Group. 
a boutique M&A firm that helps business owners maximize company value and exit at the top of their game. To learn more about Exit Advisory Group, you can go to exitadvisory.com.au. And if you like what you've just heard, you can subscribe at buygrowsell.com to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Thank you for listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast with Simon Bedard. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit buygrowsell.com forward slash episodes. Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn.